Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week on the podcast, we've got Colorado-based professional gravel racer, Chris Schroeder. Chris is not only a racer, but he's also the manager of the Diamond Factory Racing Team. His path to gravel racing was from that of a, as a professional triathlete. Interestingly, I learned that the privateer model, as it's known, is something that's quite prevalent in the triathlon world. But Chris didn't really want to take that model forward. He really wanted to build a professional gravel racing team. So I thought it'd be interesting to get his perspective, to hear about his experience in the gravel world thus far, and more importantly, hear about what his plans are for 2022 with his teammates. Before we jump in, I need to thank this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is literally a product I use every single day. I've been an Athletic Greens user for many years prior to actually starting the podcast. I really didn't have the time nor inclination to take a bunch of pills and vitamins to get some of my nutritional bases covered. So when I found out about AG1, I was stoked about how convenient it was going to be for me. So what's in this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. This is particularly poignant at this moment as I just got back from two back-to-back 90-mile days riding down to Santa Cruz, California, and back up to my home in Marin County. Athletic Greens, I brought one of their travel packs with me to take on Sunday morning as I got up and started my second big day. And when I got home, I blasted another one simply because I needed a little bit more. I knew I had run the battery down pretty darn low with this weekend's riding. And Athletic Greens always gives me the confidence that I'm at least covering my baselines nutritionally. Build on top of that a healthy diet and you've got yourself a winning combination. Athletic Greens will cost you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. Athletic Greens has over 7,500 five-star reviews and is recommended by professional athletes. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially in the middle of cold and flu season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for millions of different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. With that business out of the way, let's jump right into my interview with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited when you reached out to me. I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion. The starting point for all my conversations is always to get a little bit of your background as a cyclist, how you came into the sport, and how ultimately you started riding gravel. So it's hard to say how I came into cycling. I came into cycling and triathlon at the same time when I was about 15 years old. My family uh, relocated from uh, Telluride, Colorado to New York City. And at the time, New York City is has a giant cycling presence. Criteriums are a very big thing there. They do a lot of races in Central Park and the surrounding area. So as a way for me to find something to do when I was there, I started 
riding with just the local cycling club. It wasn't a race club. It was just like a website or a forum where you just go on there and they say, oh, we have a group ride every couple mornings. And, you know, it was fun. I had a old road bike. And then the same exact time I was getting into that, I also equally wanted to get into triathlon. So that was a great like way for me to start training and start preparing. And as that grew, I did a couple bike races and at the same time training for triathlons eventually just kept going into triathlon and kept doing more of those. And at the same time, I was always a very big fan of cycling. I would always watch the races. I would always follow the riders. And that was like, I raced triathlon, but I was a fan of cycling. So I just kept coming up in triathlon. Eventually I went to college at university of Colorado here in Boulder and Boulder is a great community for pro triathletes and cyclists of all kinds. It's just a mecca for it. And I ended up eventually becoming a professional in, I believe, 2015, the, like the end of 2015. I went on and raced five years professional triathlete. You know, I got a lot out of it. I traveled the world. I raced on like six different continents. I met amazing people like throughout the whole way. But at the end of the five years, I just, I wasn't content with where my career was and I wasn't really I kind of plateaued. I just wasn't moving up. I wasn't getting the results I needed to continue doing the sport. And I just stagnated. And going into 2020, I had this mindset. And I had signed up for, to, as a way out, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to finish this sport by doing my first full Ironman. So I went to go, the plan was, all right, I'm going to go do Ironman New Zealand in March. And a couple months before that, there was a race in Oklahoma called the Oklahoma gravel grower at the time. And I kind of knew that about the sport gravel. I really liked it. Cause it reminded me a lot of the monuments in cycling, like Paragru Bay, the dynamic, just of the just badass, like let's get out here and get dirty and strongest man wins kind of mentality. So I ended up going to that race, not really knowing anything. I was like, didn't have a gravel bike or anything like that. I just was on my road bike with the biggest tires I could fit. And I ended up having a great race. So early on, I got into a move with Ted King. We went on for a while. Like I eventually got dropped, got picked up by two guys behind, and then ended up beating both of them in the sprint to finish second. So all of a sudden, I had this hot iron of what I used then to go on to use to create this transition to gravel. Interesting. Yeah, for me, it's not super surprising that you had a great cycling experience in New York. It might've been 10 years ago before I knew a bunch of people from New York and realized like how great the scene is there for road racing. It's maybe a little surprising that you got into triathlons out of New York, but obviously there's a lot of great road running there and, and triathlon. There's a few good races in that neck of the woods. Yeah. We'll come back to that when we start talking about diamond and stuff like that. But when I, you know, because I've had that result in Oklahoma, when I went on to, you know, do Ironman New Zealand and, you know, the race went, it, it was a good way to end the, to close the book on my triathlon career and maybe feel very content or very like, all right, I did everything I could and I got what I got out of it. And then I'm probably the only person in the world who this positive came from COVID where the world shut down as soon as. Like before I even left New Zealand, the world started shutting down. It's a miraculous that I even got able to leave the country. The world shut down. All these triathlon races got canceled. All of a sudden, the sport that I don't want to do isn't happening anymore. 
but I have all these sponsors that need me to do something. So what I was able to do with all my current sponsors is say, hey, I can't race a triathlon because there's no triathlons. I can go do another gravel race where I already had this giant buzz, this giant pop, and a good result earlier this year. So with that, I was able to just start doing gravel races with all my sponsors still supporting me. They were just supporting me as they were, and things just went well. And then mid-2020, we just started really committing to, we're just going to start a team. We're not going to have minimums or anything like that. We're just going to, at the end of the, at January 1st, we're announcing this team and it can be big, small, whatever we, wherever we land, we're going to go with, you know, we are very fortunate in having a Jared come on board, our videographer. And he really is the only reason this team is, was able to exist in 2021 is because I did a Belgian Waffle Ride Cedar City, September, 2020. He came out made what I think still to this day is his best piece of work, which was a video covering my experience there, really just raw showing the experience. And I was able to then, all these sponsors I was talking to at the time that were like, eh, we don't really know. I was able to send them this video and it was like talking to a different person. All of a sudden the conversation went my way and we were able to close a couple deals with at the time, Kenda tires and vision components. Both of which were huge. We we desperately needed both of those contracts. Eventually, Hyperthreads Clothing and Lynn Helmets came on board to help us out. And then, bing, we had a team. We had the support. We had the riders. We had a product, um, which was our video production and assets. And that kind of launched us into 2021. That's a super interesting story about how athletes need to package themselves up in order to be successful in this sport. I want to go back a little bit to that transition period and as a quick side note, I also retired as a triathlete from Ironman New Zealand. Not professional, not fast, but it was my last Ironman. And I, I agree. It's something, if you get into the sport of triathlon, regardless of the level, having that Ironman experience is just, it, I think it's very similar to these epic gravel events where just getting across the finish line can be such a magical thing in your history that everybody should try to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I It's just like, in the moment, I was just miserable. Like I was unhappy with a lot of stuff, like just in my life and where I was in my career. But I, because I finished it, I can just, I don't have to look back because I'm just, I'm so much more content than I would be had I not done that. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm also curious, you know, it sounds like the 70.2 distance was a strong suit of yours. Then you moved up to the Ironman distance. When you started going to these long gravel events, what kind of parallels did you see from the endurance and mental strength required to complete an Ironman or a long distance triathlon to what you were seeing at the gravel. Well, it's hard. I, I don't think 70.3 Ironman. You can draw a lot of parallel parallels. 70.3 distance, not as much because those races are dynamic. You are racing. An Ironman is a lot more similar in the sense where you're not racing. You're all just trying to finish. And one of you happens to finish before the others. Definitely the mental attitude that you have in an Ironman of when you're just trying to finish of I have nothing else to do today. As long as I keep putting one foot in front of the other, I will eventually cross the line. That's like the unfortunate gravel mentality for a lot of these 10 plus hour events or even the common, I feel like 125 miles is the common distance for gravel. You're still looking at a seven hour day for the fast guys. Like it's a lot of time out there. Yeah, I think one versus a 71 is really four hours. Most professionals go way under that now. So 
it's hard to say. Like, I think honestly that my biggest asset transitioning to gravel was just the amount of time I spent being a fan of cycling and watching professional races and just admiring the tactics. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that has come up on a number of occasions and in, in, in my own personal experience with triathlon was just stuff's going to go wrong and you just got to move forward and get on with it. And the events are long enough that, you know, you can have a really bad nutrition or hydration moment and come back around if you just fuel the system in the right. Absolutely. I think in gravel, some of the gravel, you can get a little more catastrophic with your failures. You're talking about just breaking. Everything is breakable in a gravel race, like tire, wheel, bike, handlebars, yourself. Like it's all up in the air. In a triathlon, you can bonk or you can get a flat. Like those, those are really the two bad scenarios. In a gravel, it's just you just don't know what's going to go wrong. There's so many options here. Yeah, 100%. Like for Unbound, the fact that you have to basically be able to rebuild your entire bike is rather daunting. Speaking of Unbound, so 2020, you sort of get your gravel legs underneath you. You have the good fortune of having sponsors that are willing to pivot with you because gravel was going off more than the triathlon world was. You fell in love with it. 2021, you register from Unbound, and there's a great video of your experience there. So why don't you you talk to us about your experience. What was your expectations and goals going in and how did it play out? Unbound was definitely a little emotional. Like it's a, like it's a lot that goes into it. It's really very parallel to the Ironman world championships in terms of prestige and just the hype around it. I definitely went into it a little ignorant of just like what's about to happen. I made some just blatant mistakes, but ultimately I just wasn't, trained properly for it and completely just melted and the it's hard to describe for people that haven't done unbound it's 200 miles i think the winner did like 10 hours and 30 minutes this year so you would expect this the race to play out in something that in a way that would you know relate to someone trying to pace themselves for that long of a race in the beginning like three hours of unbound are just you're on the pace. And did you enter that race thinking I'm going to stick with the lead group? You know, this is going to be my tactic in those first three hours. Yeah. And I I just didn't do a couple blatant things. I didn't preview enough of the course. I previewed maybe the first like 20 miles and then like mile, like 25, we entered this just ridiculous double track section of just bodies everywhere. And like as a easy tactical error i was 50 wheels back when we entered that section and this is probably my biggest advice for anyone racing gravel is it's not ever the effort of being in the front group that's going to get you it's the effort of having to chase back onto the front group that's going to kill you and having to do that twice because there's two double track sections and both of those sections i wasn't prepared and i was out of position and then leaving them, I had to chase back on. And then those efforts are the ones that really take it out of you where you're doing 10, 15 minutes, just like everything you've got to try and chase back on. That's the effort you can't recover from. And that's also the same effort that you're burning very precious fuel. You're burning your body's heating up, like, you know, the internal temperature and all that's just going up. And to ever recover from that, like you almost have to completely just start going easy to even recover from it. So that that's like my, the thing that kind of like led to the, my uh, larger downfall in that race was just those big efforts from just not being prepared with the course that resulted in just 
a catastrophic kind of blow up that I had. It's hard to say like 200 miles is a lot. It's a lot to train for to being competitive in it. And I think that perhaps for 2022, I might actually pivot and race the hundred mile and unbound with this, the thought process of just being like at in the 200, you know, what's realistic from a result standpoint, you know, everything goes well, like, you know, my best day, where am I finishing? You know, perhaps on my best day, I'm finishing ninth in the 200. That's a huge result. I think on an average day, I could win the hundred. So from an athlete perspective and a business perspective, I'd have to think, all right, where's the optimal value? And right now I'm seeing it in the hundred, you know, the hundred got a lot of press still. The winner was on a lot of the magazines and, or not the magazines, like the news articles that we came out about it. So I think that I might be taking a step back from doing the 200 unbound this year to refocus and prioritize the hundred and really go after a result there. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, hundred is a lot more raceable distance than a 200, as you said, you know, I think the top men and women, like they know how to handle that high octane three hour, first three hour of unbound, and then go back to a more comfortable level and then race, you know, another six hours later, but at least. In, Absolutely. Yeah. I think that 200 miles, the thing is this, I think eventually unbound will suffer from this is that it's not dynamic watching 200 miles race. It, Ironman has the same problem. It's not interesting watching an eight hour race because not enough is happening to keep you entertained. Unbound is the same thing. Even the last five hours of it are even more boring than the first five. You're watching the more boring part because everyone is just dying at that point and they're just dying in a direction towards the finish line. A hundred mile race is completely different. You know, it's completely dynamic the whole entire time. You're because it's shorter, people are able to stay together longer and makes for a more interesting race. And that's where I think that I get the gravel has this mindset of like longer is more gravel or something along those lines. But there is a line where you need to just like adding miles for the sake of adding miles is just not like, what's it doing? I had this conversation with um, Jim Miller at BLBR at Cedar City where this year they, it used to end where you do like a mile, like 105, you'd go from do like five miles of single track and then you get on a bike path and it was like three miles to the finish line. And they added like 17 miles of like, you finish the single track and then just do 17 miles of like nothing gravel and then around like construction sites. Like you're on the road going through like neighborhoods, like you're on the road going through an industrial park. And I was just like, why did you add that? Like it did nothing for the race. You have this, beautiful ending you know you're struggling you go all these climbs you get to the single track just getting there is such an accomplishment you finish this very hard technical downhill single track and then you're on a bike path to the finish line and it, i was like when you think of a race and you're no one's saying you have to have a certain distance so you should just try and have the best race course you can and by adding those extra miles you didn't really do you did the opposite you made us all finish with the last hour of stuff that we saw was an airplane hangar and a construction site and utility stuff. Like, I just think that some of these race directors need to not have the mindset of longer is better. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. It's interesting to get your perspective as someone more towards the front end of the race. Cause I've got the mid pack perspective and, but I tend to agree with you. Like for me, 
beyond a hundred miles just is not something I really can ever get fit enough for being, you know, a professional and a family man. Like that's just not happening in my world. So I'm not super pro those things. And I can, in talking to you, definitely get it that you're not going to get a very dynamic race with 20 people battling it out if it's 200 miles, because half of those people are going to drop out from mechanicals. Others are going to drop out through nutrition and you're going to end up with this battle of attrition that maybe leaves it as we've seen in the last couple of years, two or three people duking it out a little bit towards the end of the 200. And then maybe if you're lucky, it's a sprint finish. Yeah. And I'm the same way. Like just physiologically, like that hundred mile to like a fast 125 mile course, that's my sweet spot. And I think that, I don't know if I would say like, it was a hard lesson to learn that I'm not in this current state, a 200 mile racer. I'm a lot better at that hundred, 125 kind of range. You know, I'm accepting like, look, I'm at a couple of these events, like uh, take gravel worlds, for example, like it's just not, it's not great for me. I could do, you know, really well on a, a faster, less climby 125 mile course, but longer than that, I'm just not ready. Like I just don't have the years and miles of this intensity in the legs. Like even though a triathlon is obviously still very bike heavy, I don't have the intensity that these races are run at for that long a time. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, what, when you transitioned, you talked about this a little bit, but how would you characterize your gravel skill set? Are you feeling technically strong or is that still like you're a horsepower guy from your triathlon days? It's a hard one. It's definitely something I'm, I work really hard to improve on is my technical skills, not just like unbound and it's a good example of, well, early stages in unbound, I would say like the first 30 miles of unbound, you are in a giant group and you need to be technically skilled enough to move within that group in a very comfortable way. You need to be really comfortable bumping elbows and shoulders. And I did a lot to help myself with that. I raced a lot of like criteriums on the local scene. I did a cycle cross this season, all with that in mind of not only do I want to get better at it, I want to be known as someone who's very proficient at my handling and my positioning. Because I think that's one of the biggest gaps in gravel where you can take advantage of is uh, a technical skill, especially for descending. It's very hard. It's not like the road at all because there's so many things going on in any given turn. So just getting better at that skill is something I really wanted to invest in in the off season. And hopefully that kind of uh, pays for itself this coming season. Yeah, that goes into another one of my sort of desires for the sport. I love when event organizers do throw in technical elements of the course, because I do think the best gravel racers that I want to see that I admire, they've got that full bag of tricks, right? They can go well when it's a basic gravel road or pavement, but they also can thrive in the technical elements of the sport. And you definitely see, and it sounds like you're very attuned to the types of events that are going to suit you well. So maybe you're not going to a super single tracky event today as you're continuing to build that skill set. And you're also not going to see me doing like I'm six, three and like 170 pounds. Like I'm not going uphills quick. Like you're not going to see me at Tosher. I did that race this year and I was like, this is awful. This isn't for the big boys. So like knowing also like, all right, what, what race am I realistically going to be competitive at versus what race do I just not like, don't just don't go do that. Like just don't do that race. You can just skip it. Like there's nothing wrong with skipping a race. So I think it's just a lesson where you have to just sit and go, let's take an honest look at things. 
this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm horrible at. So we shouldn't go to races that have a big emphasis on stuff that I'm bad at. I, I definitely agree with you where I think that in gravel, every race should have like one call it feature of just ridiculousness. Like each race, you know, throw in a single track section, throw in some river crossings, you know, something like that. Just, I think it's always fun just to have that one kind of obstacle that race will then become known for. Yep. Yeah. It's like a preem and a criterium. It just spices things up. And in this scenario, you'd know about it, right? You know, there's a technical single track coming up and that it may create a, a break. You know, that might be someone's opportunity to take advantage of their particular skill set, knowing what full well that, you know, they're less proficient in another discipline. I remember hearing Payson McElvin talking about the rule of three and racing against Ian Boswell. And he's like, you know, Ian's got me in so many different ways, but I did know when, as someone with a mountain bike background, when I hit that single track, it was going to be a huge advantage for me. And I could likely take that to the finish line. And that proved to be. Yeah. I think that, I, I think I've even listened to that interview with Payson and Ian, where it does, it mixes it up, which keeps gravel interesting. It means that mountain biker has an advantage on the road cyclist and you know, the flip side of, you know, that of the road cyclist has the advantage on the mountain biker in all these different sections. And it just goes on like BWR Kansas had like a cyclocross specific section, which favored a bunch of guys from the, that background. So it just, it helps keep gravel fresh by giving people from all these different disciplines their chance to shine. A while back, you mentioned your cycling team and the formation of it, the diamond factory racing team. I thought it was interesting as you and I were talking offline Obviously, the, the de rigueur professional attitude towards gravel racing is I'm going to become a privateer and I'm going to cobble together my own personal sponsors and I'm going to overtly take that positioning. You've taken a different approach and you're looking to build a team. And I'm just curious to, to hear in your own words about that process and why team versus privateer and what's the vision for the. That's a, a hard one to say, like triathlon. It's funny, we talk about privateers so much in gravel. All triathlon is privateer. That's all you do. So I privateered for years, five years of privateering. I loved it, but the thing when you're a privateer is you have nothing to point at and say, like, this won't all be gone tomorrow. If you're a privateer, you wake up the next day, every single sponsor you have could be gone. It, it, you know, it sucks to say, like, and that's just the business. I wanted to... And then when you're done racing, it's all gone completely. It's not coming back. You're, if you're not racing, providing what they want, the service, your job's done. So part of the team was I really enjoy the business process of the sport. And I wanted to build something where I can actually transition from being a racer to just being the manager. So the goal was always this long-term vision of I want to build a program that's my career. I want my career to be building this team. And I want it to be pursued that way. Where when I talk to people now, I, I say like, the honest truth is I'm in the gravel business. I'm not in the gravel hobby. I'm not in the gravel fitness. I'm in the gravel business. And everything I do has somewhat of a business perspective on it. Because that's just the mindset I have to have for me to ever get this program to where I want it to be. And I have, you know, call it a, a five-year vision board for this team. And it's hard to map out because we just don't know what gravel is going to look like every year. It's changing a little bit. 
different regulations, the UCI is coming in, politics, drama, it all kind of changes and affects the way that the outcome is going to be. But I know like deep down that I want this program five years from now to be the absolute forefront of the sport on the professional scene. I want people entering the sport young age or of any aspiration to always be looking to us as that pinnacle of this is what it means to be like a true professional the same way Ineos is in cycling or was, I guess now it's shuffled a little bit at the top, but having that team where everyone wants to be on this team means that you've made it. So what's step one in that journey? What does 22 look like for the pro? Well, step one was the hardest one. Step one was Brittany and I and Jared coming together and saying, we're just going to start a team. And this was a back in when we first started the program going into 2021 of saying, we, we decided the biggest thing that we had to put away in our minds was we're only, we had this mindset of we're only going to start this team. If we do fill in the blank, we had to take that away and just say, we're starting a team no matter what, and we're just going to go with it. So changing that is what led us to step one. And then in 2021, our big gamble, you could say was we ended up investing 80, 90% of our budget into content creation. We just said to Jared and we want the absolute highest quality possible consistently. I don't care about views. I don't care about likes. We just need consistent, high quality content. And that's the investment we're going to make because we think that's where the value is that we can show it's tangible. Uh, we can always point at it and say, here's a product a sponsor comes, you know, we can show them this is our asset. A lot of people don't understand when you're talking to sponsors, you need to have definable assets for them to understand, for them to latch onto and create value from. And that's where the part is in cycling and triathlon, where the modern scope of what that is very different than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Simply going to a sponsor saying, I race 20 times a year and I post on Instagram every other week. You're not really creating value. You're just there. You're just going to pack fire at that point. Do you have a vision we just for the type of content that you're aspiring to produce? Is it giving people a closer look at what racing some of these big races is like, or are you thinking otherwise? Well, our biggest asset is our series. It's called the Equal Ride. It's on um, my YouTube channel and the team's YouTube channel. And that's where we're diverting all of our budget and support into creating this series. And we just want it to be a YouTube series. And it's hard to say like what it shows. We just say that it shows an honest look because you go to these races and everything will go different than you think it will. So we just tell Jared, whatever happens, just film it. And it sucks when you're dying on the side of Unbound and you have to DNF and there's a camera in your face and you have to narrate your own misery. It's awful. But that's what we decided to go with and just keep leaning into it. And, you know, there's the flip side of, oh, I had a great race. I'm so happy to talk about it. So we never know what an episode is going to be. We just know it's going to be honest. It's going to be misery. It's going to be glory and everything in between. Gotcha. I'll point people to the YouTube link for that failure in 2021. Cause I do think it is interesting and it's so it's real. It's truth, right? Yeah. And that's just the thing is that you have a lot of these professionals that will have a bad race and they'll bury it. You know, they'll, they won't post anything about it. They won't talk about it. They'll post 10 other things about 
blah, 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 motivation. And you're like, wait, I, f- I saw this build and then all of a sudden there's just a gap and now you're back on this train. Like what happened? Like, I want to know, like I'm following you for a, a reason. And that's the story. Like I'm not following you because I think you're going to win. I follow you because I just want to see your story and your perspective. Yeah. So we really want to be true to the audience and give them what really happened. That makes sense. So the title sponsor of the team is a company called Diamond Bikes. And I wasn't familiar with them. And after doing a little research, I see that they were big in the triathlon world, but they do have a pretty impressive looking gravel bike. Do you want to talk a little bit about the company, where it's based and the bike you'll be riding this year? It's quite the the story of how Diamond and I came together when I was back living in New York City as a, a kid. At the time, before I'd even done my first triathlon, Ironman hosted Ironman New York City, which was a gimmick. The entire triathlon took place in New Jersey and then the finish line was in New York City and it was a joke. But I was a kid. I volunteered the entire day. I was up at like 3 a.m. I was just buzzing. I saw all this stuff. It was fantastic. I, you know, it was at the finish line start, like handing people their swim bags. And then everywhere I could go, I was. And then at the end of the day, I ended up at the finish line. And if anyone's ever done an Ironman or a triathlon, you know that when you cross the finish line, people more or less just collapse emotionally, physically, however they feel like it. So they have volunteers literally there to catch you. And you stand in a line and just, you know, people come in, you, whoever's first in line catches them. One, I was there and, you know, this is just a 15 year old kid, this pro called TJ Tullickson came over the line. I caught him. I think he finished like fifth on the day. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. You know, I'm a kid. I just touched a pro. And to me, it was just the coolest thing in the world. You know, follow TJ, enjoyed that. Eventually, you know, a couple of years later, I became a pro. And then a couple of years after that, I went and did a, Ironman 70.3 in Argentina. It was in Bariloche, one of the prettiest towns I've ever been to. And these races, you know, what they do is they'll put you up and they'll just assign you a hotel room. And I happened to be assigned a hotel room with TJ. So we shared a room in Argentina and we just kind of became friends through that story. And we ended up doing quite a few races together. We raced all over the country. I think TJ, we raced in Argentina, we raced in Peru, we've raced in the United States. And then towards the end, he eventually retired from racing and I went on race a couple more years. And then eventually I have stepped down from triathlon to gravel and we'd always kept in contact. We've always been friends and it was a great relationship. And then he watched what we did in 2021. And then I went to Sea Otter and I went there pretty much from a business perspective of like all my sponsors are here. I can sit down and crank out two months worth of emails in two days. Also just a great event. Iconic. I highly recommend anyone considering going, doing that race. This is any race you want, they have it. And I went there and I saw DJ and it was great. You know, we bumped into each other. He showed me their gravel mine. We talked, you know, all was good. And we went our separate ways. And then a couple weeks later, I kind of got a text from him saying, Hey, I got an idea for you. Let's chat. And six weeks of hardcore negotiating later, we end with a a multi-year title sponsorship deal with Diamond. And it's become really the linchpin of this team now because of the ability where it guarantees our ability to grow. No matter what happens, we can grow going into 2023 now. And that's what this team needs. I, I need to always have a perspective of what's the next step. 
if I'm not looking to grow, we're stagnating. So closing this deal and being able to have this benchmark of guaranteed two athletes coming on going to 2033, nothing else matters. Everything else can go with that. Yeah, it's pretty unheard of level of security, I imagine, for a lot of gravel racers. To put a little bit more color around the brand, they're located in Iowa. Is that correct? Yeah. So this is an American brand. The factory is in Des Moines, Iowa. The bikes are made in Des Moines, Iowa. They're handmade. Um, it's super bespoke experience. If you go on their website, kind of the first thing you're going to see is that just like actual diamonds, no two diamond bikes look the same. Every single diamond bike you get a custom paint job, however you want it, funky, traditional, everything in between. You work directly with the owner, TJ, when you're buying and ordering. Uh, and it's just a, a great experience, I think. It's also just unique. You know, you're you're going to stand out with a diamond. Yeah, they've they launched their gravel and their road bike. Their gravel bike, the Carbide, is very new. They launched it mid-2020. And it was a, it's an interesting bike when I first saw it. Diamond for the triathletes who are aware of the brand, they made make the fastest triathlon bike on the market. It's non-traditional. It's a beam bike, and it was pretty much the pioneer for that whole industry of the the beam bikes. And when they came to gravel with anything, they said, "All right, how can we be the forefront of this?" And that's what went into the carbine and just the way that it's laid out, the geometry. It's all race focused. Like this bike is a thoroughbred. It's there to win races. And I'm just the thing on top of it pedaling. So that's an interesting perspective as this is probably my first time where it's a lot to say this. I think that we're going to have the fastest bike in gravel. I think the way that our diamonds are built with vision components, it's weird to say, but I think we're going to have the fastest bike in the sport. That's confidence inspiring. I'm sure to look down and feel that way. Yeah, it's an interesting bike and I'll make sure to link to it in the notes as well. And fascinating to learn that there's another U.S. carbon manufacturing brand out there because there, you know, there's probably only a handful of them in existence in the United States. Yeah, it's a dynamic that you mainly hear about. Like you always hear like these legendary oh Italian brands that make five bikes and they cost a million dollars. And I think that was the normal introduction people think when they think small brands. But this one being American it's just, it's very different. It's a very American brand. TJ is American. He tries to be more flamboyant than he is, but he's just a hardcore American and he's a blue collared, hardworking dude. I, it's weird. Like he's my boss now, but we've been, we were friends for so many years that it's hard to have this transition of like thinking of him as a boss. When I just think of him as like this guy I've traveled the world with and he's told me stories about everyone I can think of. And, you know, we sit down and he tells me about his kids and stuff like that. It's just this guy, when I proposed to my fiance, we had a, a business call and it was like right after I had proposed and we talked, it was like an hour long conversation. We talked five minutes about business and it was like 55 minutes of just mind shattering advice for marriage and life. Like it was these perspectives that just gave me this feeling of someone who really cares about me. He basically talked me into wanting to have a wedding when I really just didn't care. Like he just completely changed my perspective on it. And to have that relationship is really special to me. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be an amazing thing to have in your corner. 
this year and the fact that you guys are building something together confirmed over the next two years is just going to be great. It's going to be super interesting to see where it goes. Speaking of this year, what what's your what are your goals this year? Are there big events that you're really thinking about? It's a little bit up in the air. I just got confirmed for Lead Boat like yesterday where I got my Leadville charge on the credit card. That's how they tell you. So that's going to be a major goal. Unbound will be a major goal in terms of like peak performances, fitness. Every race I go to, I'm trying to win. I'm not going to races anymore that I don't think we're going to win. I'm going to win. So Mid-South, Unbound, SPT, and then uh, Big Sugar in Belgium, Wolfride, Kansas are all like my main events, but I'm also going to hit a lot of like local grassroots events. I'm starting off my season at Gravel Miami, which is a new event in Miami. And I'm really excited to do that one. It's a flat course, which I'm really excited about a hundred miles. And I'm just excited for that race. They're putting us, it's sponsored by um, Miami Brewing Company and they rented like three rap video level mansions to house kind of the pros in. Only in Miami. Yeah, it's only in Miami and it's, you know, it's the treatment that I always dreamed I would get at every race. So I'm going to be a little sad when I come back from it and I realize, go back to van life at all these events. And I'm really excited for that one. We'll do a couple other. The Robidoux Rendezvous is a hundred mile race in Scotts Bluff. Just some smaller ones. Like there's something in gravel that is special that everyone jokes about dying. They call it the spirit of gravel. If you go to these small races, you'll experience that. It's special, it's unique, and it's weird, but it's still out there, but it's only in these small races. So for me, you know, if I go to Unbound, it feels the same as when I was a professional Ironman. Everyone is, you know, a little tense, they're a little uptight. They're there, everyone's on their peak form. No one really wants to talk and hug and all that stuff. But then you go to these smaller grassroots events and it's the opposite of all that. It's everyone's relaxed. Everyone's just there for the community and the experience and beer. It's great. So I really want to make sure I continue to have those in my schedule to keep me grounded into what I love about the sport. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are, those are, it's a key thing that's going on in gravel that how races are changing and evolving and no one wants to lose that intimacy and camaraderie. But inevitably, like as these races get bigger and more important to people's professional careers, it's undoubtable that the tenor is going to change at the start line. So yeah, long live the community event. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's just how it is. And we're actually trying, one thing I do kind of a, from a business perspective is I try to pull from other sports and something, this is unique and I think it's an hopefully going to be a good success that we're going to be trying this year is that at certain races, we're actually going to have a diamond booth in the expo where we're going to have, you know, this year will be a little different because it's just myself and Brittany and Jared. We're, you know, we're going to be there to try and interact as much as possible. We're going to have team bikes. We're even going to have some demo bikes come by. You can chat with us. And we want to grow that very similar to like motocross or NASCAR where people get the experience to come into the pits and they get to look at the garage and, see the driver and the mechanics all working. We're going to bring that as a way for people to interact more with us on a personal level and especially in a approachable way. Yeah. You know, we've all been that fanboy at the expo that sees someone we want to talk to, but 
you know, they're walking around, they're doing their thing and we don't want to interrupt them. So we thought, how can we create an approachable environment that is friendly for the fans? And it's a great way for us to really talk to our fans about our, our sponsors and say, Hey, you know, this is our bike. And if you want to, you, here's a demo one, go take it around the block. Like, yeah. Yeah. Touch it. I think that'll shine through if you set that intention, which is great. And I think based on this conversation, fans of the sport will have a great way to follow you and your team throughout the year on the video series and hopefully be able to connect with you at some of these events. So I, Chris, I appreciate all the time today and it's a great conversation. I wish you best of luck and really do look forward to seeing your name up there at the front end of these events. Yeah. Fingers crossed that it eventually gets there. And for anyone watching, like you're going to see me in an event or two this year, come up, give me a hug. I want to interact with you guys as much as you perhaps want to interact with me. So just don't be a stranger. Right on. Thanks, Chris. So that's going to do it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Chris and I encourage you to follow the Diamond Factory Racing team on social media. I know they've got big plans to show you behind the scenes about what it's like being a professional gravel racer in 2022. If you're interested in joining the conversation, I encourage you to visit the ridership, www.theridership.com. It's our free online community. Within the community, you'll find gravel cyclists of all kinds, whether they be backpackers, racers, commuters, you name it, they're all in there. Everybody in the community shares a common goal and it's just to elevate one another. So whether you're looking to answer some of those hard questions about what tire to buy or what equipment, what bike to buy, or just need some moral support, the community is there for you. I'm always impressed with the level of interaction and camaraderie that I see happening that I've got nothing to do with. It is also a great place to get in touch with me. So if you have any feedback for the show, please just hit me up directly in the ridership. I've found inspiration for many a new episode from the questions that I've received through the ridership. So remember that's just www.theridership.com to get started. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit me at buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. I appreciate any and all support you can provide to my efforts. And hopefully the journey that I've been on as a gravel cyclist has been useful to all of you. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.